Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Conscious Awakening Series. I'm your host, Sheila Seppi, and my intention with this podcast is to support you on your spiritual and cosmic expansion growth. Now, each week, we explore inspiring stories of resilience, triumph, and transformation. And you're watching us on the Conscious Awakening Network, so please check us out at ConsciousAwakeningNetwork.org. Sign up to be on our mailing list, where each week you're going to learn about amazing programming that's being offered uh, by CAN. So today, I have the honor of hosting Amanda Blackwell, a remarkable individual who has turned adversity into advocacy and pain into powerful art. Amanda is a survivor of human trafficking who has not only overcome unimaginable challenges, but has emerged as an accomplished artist, an author, a public speaker, a podcast host to four, I might add, and a trauma recovery mentor. Her journey is not just a story of survival, but it's an inspiring testimony to the strength of the human spirit. Amanda's art serves as a profound expression of her healing journey and her words, both in her book and as a public speaker, resonate with authenticity and courage. She hosts four podcasts that provide platforms for others to share their story as well. Now, as a trauma recovery mentor, Amanda has dedicated herself to supporting others on their healing path. Her advocacy work has been instrumental in raising awareness about human trafficking, the challenges, the misconceptions, and fostering a community of support. Today, we're going to delve into Amanda's stories, the stories behind her impactful words, her art, uh, the importance of her advocacy in the fight against human trafficking. So, Amanda, welcome to the Conscious Awakening series. I am so happy that you're here and so happy to be interviewing a fellow Coloradan. Thank you so much, Sheila. And it's so wonderful to be here with you in this freezy cold day here in Colorado. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I'd like to start off, if you would, sharing a little bit about yourself, your background, your experience, and what led you to writing your book. But before you do that, what just before you do that, I have to say I, I was skimming through and I pulled one of the quotes from an overview that I found from your book, Custom Justice. I want to read that. It says, it's hard enough to escape human trafficking. But how does someone survive the aftermath of continually being hunted for years to come? Wow, that's powerful. And it's quite a journey that you've had, my dear. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about yourself, your background and your experiences. So with most survivors of human trafficking, most, not all, we do have one fundamental core issue in common, and that's early childhood trauma and abuse. So I'm no stranger to that myself. The first time that I can remember ever being molested, I was only four. My father was physically abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. My brother was the one who molested me. He was only three years older than me. So knowing that now and being able to look back on that, I can absolutely say that I don't harbor any any blame towards my brother because he was too young to know these things himself. Something had happened to him. And he was acting right. out and I was his vessel for being able to try to understand what had happened. I don't know what happened to him. He blocked out all of his childhood. 
That's very common amongst trauma survivors that are boys. Mm. But I didn't. I didn't have that luxury. I did block that memory out, but it happened repeatedly in my later age that I didn't re- that I didn't want to remember, but was forced to remember every single day of my life, every time I looked in the mirror. So I was molested again at 12 by my brother, again at 13 by an uncle by marriage, again at 15 by a stranger in a parking lot in broad daylight, and nobody did anything. I in, in the swimming pool at one point, I think I was 14. So it's just this constant pattern. So by the time I was 18, I had been running away for several years. I was determined to make it on my own. I felt like I had no family to really back me up or support me in any way. Sure. I was being blamed for everything that had happened to me. My mother had this constant phrase of, if something keeps happening to you, then you must be the one at fault. You know, there's, there's a common denominator in your it. Right. So I felt like this was what my life was going to be. This is all it was ever meant to be. This is what was going to happen. And people were going to keep taking what I called slices of my soul Mm. until I learned how to give it away myself so that I could retain that sense of dignity. Maybe I could get something for it instead. And I started using myself to be able to have a roof over my head as this 18 year old living in another state, long ways away from home and not really knowing what a home meant. The first time I was trafficked, I was 18. The man was more than twice my age and he loaned me out to his buddy as a birthday favor. I was taken on an airplane to Las Vegas, put in a small hotel room and the front desk was paid very well to not ask questions. I was told that I didn't have a room key and if I left the room, I wouldn't be allowed back in. And the man who took me to Las Vegas had my uh, ID card with him so that I had basically nothing if I left there. I could get room service, but only once a day. The hotel had instructions to be able to leave the room service outside of the room and walk away before I went to retrieve it. And they were paid well to do that. Mm -hmm. And I knew in that moment that I'd been through a lot of stuff and I knew that I had the strength within me to get through this. But I also knew that if I left that room and went to go find police or help of some kind, I may never find that help. They might not back me up. They may do exactly what had happened the entire time I was a kid and drag me back to where I didn't want to be all those times running away from home. But if I stuck around and I put up with what it was that I was being forced into doing. I could get back to where I had been living and get my stuff and have a choice as to where I could move on to. Otherwise, I'd just be homeless in Las Vegas. That to me seemed like the worst option at the moment. So I told myself something that I repeated several times in my life that I have learned now is one of the most dangerous things that we can do. Hmm. I told myself, I've been through worse. I can get through this too. We have to stop saying that to ourselves. We have to stop saying that to other people. I was trafficked a total of three times. That was the first. The second time I was trafficked basically by landlords who sold me to a guy named Esteban. I was locked up in a small room for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities. When I got out of there, I won't go into details because it's all in the books that I've written. 
I had grown up watching MacGyver and I love Richard Dean Anderson. I've watched basically anything the man's ever been in. And I have written to him telling him that he saved my life because watching MacGyver is what got me through that situation. Mm. I've never gotten a response, but I have to trust that he just, he knows he's heard. (laughs) And when I got out of there, I went on the run for a long time. I just wanted to try and have some sort of a life and I didn't know how. Eventually I made my way out to California and my plan there was that I wanted to become the assistant to somebody important because that would mean vicariously I would be important. And that's the only way that I could see myself as ever being important to anyone for anything. My life meant nothing to anybody. It had always been that way. Instead, I became an actress and a model and I did all that stuff in LA that everybody always dreams of doing. I was on Alias and Will and Grace. I modeled for Harley Davidson when I was 26. I did a lot of really cool stuff. And during that time, that's when internet dating really became a thing. I met a guy long distance and we knew that it was too long distance for us to actually have a real meaningful relationship, but we were going to be friends because we really liked each other. And over a period of seven years, we got to know each other really well. He came to visit me eventually. I went to go out and visit him and I fell in love. And he had seen me go from this lost person who had no direction in life to taking over as a director of public safety and security for six properties to get a fiance visa and move to Scotland to marry him and spend the rest of my life there with him happily. It took him seven years to get there. (laughs) And it took him seven days to start trafficking me once I went. This is the majority of what my autobiography touches on. All this other stuff is included. But the biggest crushing blow of my life was this event in Scotland. I was there for 152 days. During that time, I was trafficked almost every single day. I could not go to the authorities for help because he was a police officer. And the people he was bringing over were other police officers and lawyers and higher-ups in the police and uh, judges, people that (laughs) you're supposed to be able to trust. I couldn't go to any of them for help. They thought it was all within uh, the confines of the law because being an escort in Scotland is not illegal. Mm. Being a prostitute is not illegal. Being trafficked is. So he made sure that he had me say certain things to make people believe that this was all of my choice so that he could not get in trouble, would not get in trouble. And the whole time this was happening, if I didn't do exactly as he asked or told me to, I would face food deprivation, uh, sleep deprivation at one point up to eight and a half days because I'm a redhead and very stubborn. Um, (laughs) When that happened, I think it was eight and a half days. You start getting a little fuzzy eventually. I was also waterboarded, but this wasn't just as a punishment. This was as kind of a sport. This was just to see what would happen. There was no term for that when I got out of there and I didn't understand what had happened and I had to give it a name myself. So I named it. I call it sport torture. It's exactly what it was. Within the first week, I tried to escape. I tried to get out of there. He had already taken away my debit card, my driver's license, my passport, all of that stuff. 
because he said it's for safekeeping. I know the area. If anybody breaks in, I know it'll be nice and safe. And he kept it all in a little small safe underneath the foot of the bed, little tiny thing. I don't understand how that would be safe from a burglar, but it was definitely safe from me. And he had all this control. But one night when the abuse was occurring, he enjoyed his drink. And I made sure just like the good server in a Denny's restaurant, you don't see the bottom of that coffee cup, right? He didn't see the bottom of his whiskey cup all night. I kept it full and he kept slugging it back. And the more he drank, of course, the more inebriated he got. And towards the end of the night, I finally told him, you know, if you were to give me back my debit card and my passport and all that stuff, I could use that tomorrow to go down to the bank and go pull out what money I have. It was just a little bit more than $2,000. That way, you know, we can spend it because otherwise it's just going to sit there in the bank in the U.S. and we're never going to use it. And it's just going to sit there forever. And he bought that story. He gave me back my stuff. And the next day, rather than going down to a bank and extracting my money, I got on the internet and I looked at flights. The first flight out was over $12,000. There was no way I could afford that. The next day, price dropped a little bit, but not enough. The first flight out that I could afford was five days after that day. And I knew that I could make it to five days. Because of course, I told myself, I've been through worse, I can get through this too, which was absolutely a lie. I'd never been through anything this bad in my life. It was like all of those bad instances all rolled up into one abusive ball. So I bought that ticket because that was the only one that I could afford. That was the first one I could afford. And during that five days, the abuse continued and was so bad that I ended up with a kidney infection that nearly killed me. I was in the hospital when that flight took off and it was a non-refundable flight. I had maybe $11 left in my bank. There was no way I was going to get out that way now. So my next thought to be able to get out was not to get back to the States, but just to get out of life. I was done. I was exhausted. I was hurting every single day. My heart was in pieces. I was broken. People didn't see me as human anymore. I didn't see me as human anymore. And I remember walking down to a church. It was built in the 16, 1700s. I think it was 1600s. Very old, beautiful place. And I sat on the front porch and I waited for a long time to see if somebody would show up. The door was locked and nobody came. And I sat in the graveyard next to a headstone that was so old. The name had been weather worn off and nobody came. And I could see people walking by on the street. And they all had this same thing that we seem to have here in the States. We look at somebody who's obviously having a bad day. They're standing there in tears. And we look at them and go, oh, it's not my problem. Let somebody else deal with that. Mm -hmm. Nobody would look at me. Nobody could see me as being somebody who is in pain and needing help. And finally, I just headed to the train station. When I got there, my plan was to smoke my one last cigarette. I was a smoker at the time. And I pulled it out and I lit my cigarette. And while I was sitting there smoking my cigarette, a man walked out onto the platform and he asked me for a light. And I handed him my light. And while I did it, I said, you can keep it. I, I won't need it anymore. And I wanted him to ask me why. 
and he wouldn't ask. And I knew I couldn't make him care. And my plan was that I was going to finish the cigarette and walking along the tracks toward where the train would be coming from. And when the train got close enough, I would step in front of the train and end my life. And a little boy, probably about four, walked out onto the platform and he took that man's hand. And that little guy looked at me. And you know how we do whenever we see a, a child, if we're having a really bad day, we'll try to cheer ourselves up and have a happy face so that we don't get that kid upset. It didn't work. I tried. But the kid looked at me and right through me and he stared me in the eyes and I could see this worried look on his face. And I knew in that moment that I could not do to that child what had been done to me so long ago. He was about the same age I was when I was molested. I could not take away this child's innocence. And if I killed myself on the tracks that day, that's exactly what would have happened. He would have had to see that. I couldn't do that to him. I couldn't do that to anybody. And I got up and before I realized it, about 20 seconds later, I realized I was running back to my prison, not to the tracks, not to the train, running back toward the abuse. And I was filled with thanks because I knew that if I was going to be kept alive in that moment, there had to be more to my life and there had to be more to my story. I wasn't going to end there some nameless, faceless thing on the side of a railroad track. I would have a life and I would be a human again. Mm. But I knew that he was a police officer. This man, I use that term loosely, <laughs> who had been abusing me. And I knew that he would understand a lot of the same psychology terms that I had studied over the years privately. I knew that he would know what Stockholm syndrome was. It's now what we refer to as trauma bonding. But I knew that if I had played my cards right, remember I was an actress in Hollywood for a little while. If I played my cards right, I could make him believe this. And about June, early June, I sat down one day and I told him, I said, you know, I've been here for five months already and my visa is only good for six months. It's a fiance visa. And if we get married, I can stay forever. And I'm sitting here thinking, please don't take this. Please don't, please don't. No, let's not get married. But I couldn't say that. But if you were to send me back, I could stay there for six months and then return. Because otherwise, if I overstay my visa, I can get kicked out of the UK, never allowed back at all because of UK laws. And you could lose your job as a police officer. And we wouldn't want that, would we? So send me back and I can come back in time for Christmas. And he got so excited at that prospect that he bought me a flight within two hours. And it was return ticket for December of that same year. And I just never went back. But just like in cases of domestic violence, the most dangerous point in time for a survivor or something like this is when they leave. The person has already determined that you are a possession to own. You belong to them. And if they can't have you, nobody will. He came looking for me. He hunted me down. I remember looking through the peephole one day and seeing him bang on the neighbor's door. 
because he had my address off by one number. And I was so new there, the neighbors didn't know who he was asking for. They also didn't speak very fluent English. So he left and I tiptoed around and I wouldn't go to work. I wouldn't leave that apartment for days because I was so terrified. I had roommates, but I didn't trust them. I didn't trust anybody. Eventually I got a job working for somebody that I had known for a very long time. And this man sent him an email, my new boss, an email. And in that email were a bunch of photos and videos that he had taken of me while I was being trafficked. And he said something along the lines of, I wouldn't want this working for me, would you? And this person I had known for a very long time believed because of the way that it was written, because of the, the content that it was all my choice. And he asked me if I would like to engage in such activities with him. And that friendship ended right then. I was done. I went and got another job. And the same thing happened. I got friends. And the same thing would happen to my friends. Things started being spread about me. All kinds of rumors and lies. I was uh, being accused of having been a call girl. Nobody understood how something like this could happen to somebody who was 31 years old. How could somebody who's 31 go through that kind of abuse without it being their choice? But it happens all the time. In 2016, I finally packed up a U-Haul and I, well, (laughs) a moving truck and a small SUV. And I moved out here to Colorado and I didn't look back. I had lost every connection that I'd ever made in California. And I decided this was where I was going to be. This is my new home. I'd wanted to live here since I was a 15 year old kid and I'd seen it for the very first time. This is where my heart was. This is where I needed to be. I felt Colorado calling and I moved out here and I felt like everything was going to be okay. And I was rebuilding my life and I was doing well. And I had moved up in the world. I was making decent money. I was salaried at a really great job. And then I found out he made me famous on a pornography website. Hmm. But I found out one, because a friend of mine reached out and said, I found this video of you on a porn site. And two, because a man asked for my autograph in a grocery store, not because I was on alias or will and grace or not because I modeled for Harley Davidson or any of the really cool things that I'd done, but he whipped out the video on his phone and showed me there I was live on a porn site. I was completely destroyed. I had no idea what to do. I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization out here in Colorado, but up until 2018, I didn't realize that what I had been through had been called trafficking at all. I just thought it was some kind of a weird, twisted, horrible abuse. I went to an anti-trafficking conference and I learned the difference, but that's where I met the people that I contacted. And one group set me up with a group of lawyers in New York City that could contact all of these pornography websites and have the stuff pulled down. That organization is called Alight. They are amazing, and I will sing them praises till the day I die. The other organization paired me up with a counselor, a therapist, who was not the right match for me, and I traumatized the woman so bad she left the industry. (laughs) So they paired me up with a second one. And she had already worked with other survivors of trafficking and she was great. But I went into this meeting with her right off the bat telling her, I don't need a bandaid. Mm-hmm. Do not 
start throwing prescription drugs at me to numb this out until I can figure out how to deal with it because I've been figuring out how to deal with it my whole life. I don't need a Band-Aid. I need a shovel. I need to get to the root of this because I want to dig it out of me and get rid of it. It's poison. I want it gone. And she helped me to get over these massive hurdles by, this was, she and I got paired up in early 2020. By December of 2020, she said, I don't think there's much more that I can do to help you. You have made a lot of progress, but I know you well enough to know that you're not going to stop here. So what are your next steps going to be? I said, I think I'm ready to write my book. And she said, oh, that's great. that's great. You've already written a few. Yeah. She said, is it going to be, you know, another brief one like, like those others? No, no, it's going to be the whole thing. She said, oh, that's fantastic. Well, it's just about Christmas season. I'm going to check in with you in January. If you need me before then, you know how to reach me. I spent the entire month of December writing my autobiography, 350 pages, and it was done by the time she called back and she said, well, now what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. She told me that she wanted me to try painting. I'd never painted. I didn't know how to paint. I told her anything I've ever tried to paint. turns out looking like a multicolored snowman laying on its side, melting. (laughs) She said, I don't care. I'm sending over somebody with paints and canvases and brushes and anything and everything that you're going to need. I want you to just try. And I did. Within, within a month, I had sold my first painting and I sold it back to the anti-trafficking organization that paired me up with her in the first place mm-hmm. so that they could afford to, they could make prints of it, sell the prints, and then afford to put more survivors into the therapy and the counseling that they needed to. And within five months, I had sold a piece to an a home for trafficking survivors in Chicago, Illinois. The Chicago Tribune wrote an article about me. My book was published that same month, which was my exact 10-year anniversary of freedom from trafficking. And the month after that's when I met my husband. And that part always gets to me the most. I don't think I'd be where I am right now if it wasn't for him. Beautiful, beautiful. Wow. You know, that's, um, that's quite a story that, um, that you have quite, I'm not even going to call it an adventure because it's really in some parts of the story, it's kind of like a horror story. And I know that there are so many, um, young girls I've counseled with some young girls who the love of their life unbeknownst to them had been videoing their encounters placed it on a porn site. They didn't know where to go. And so when I had the opportunity to reach out to you, knowing that you've had these kind of experiences, that you've got the resources available, and this is what you do. You help people. You turn these tragedies into triumphs. And not that the hurt is not there, but you heal the hurt. You, you've, you've learned you know, how to rise above it. And you are such an inspiration to so many people. And so what are you doing with your art now? Well, I started painting my own book covers. Ooh. So in 2021, I started with the idea and I finally wrote this, this book in 2022. 
Uh, it's the story of my grandmother's life as a wedding walker in the 1930s and 40s. Mm-hmm. And she had quite the remarkable story herself. It was definitely worth writing. And it was all about her first love, not my grandfather. So, of course, the family wasn't happy about this. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I wrote this entire book and I had so much fun writing it that now I'm planning on writing an entire series of uh, historical fiction books. But my grandmother's story, this is the original painting that's hanging in the home for survivors in Chicago. So the painting is, but has been duly used here and it's called carry your own baggage because it's all about how you have to carry your own baggage through life until you find a safe place to set it down. Mm-hmm. The road you left behind my grandmother had a lot of baggage and she carried it most of her life, but behind me on the wall and on the floor here, <laughs> are two of the historical fiction book covers that I have painted for the series that I have coming up. I had my first ever solo exhibition this past August at a place out here in Denver. I was very proud of that. Um, I've had my art in a couple of different galleries at this point. But every single time any of my books or paintings do sell, and I do sell them on Etsy once I get the scans, a portion of the proceeds do go to those anti-trafficking organizations that helped me so that they might have an opportunity to help somebody else. Beautiful. That's awesome. Wow. So one of the things I wanted to ask you too is about your advocacy work and the impact that it's having on broadening this conversation around human trafficking and the awareness and the prevention of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? One of the things that I've started doing, uh, I just started this in December, actually, is every single month I'm having a human trafficking Q&A. I'm answering real questions from real people and people can join me for free. They can get the tickets through Eventbrite and the links on my website and everything, but they can come into this, learn what some of the myths are right off the bat and ask real questions. You know, how does X, Y, Z happen and why did this happen? And what's the real definition? A lot of people are really confused as to what trafficking actually looks like. Well, could you share some of those myths and sort of bust them for our audience? So the best place to start with that is with the real definition of human trafficking, because we have this, this idea, but it's just kind of this nefarious idea that something bad is out there in the world happening. Mm -hmm. The definition helps to kind of narrow that down a little bit. I always tell people this isn't something you want to Google. You don't want to look it up on Wikipedia. These are fallible resources. They can be changed by people all over the world. Go to the Department of Homeland Security. Their definition of human trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain commercial sex acts or labor from another person. If the person is under the age of 18, Force, fraud, and coercion do not have to be a factor. If that child is engaged in commercial sex, that is trafficking, period. So if you notice, there's a couple of key things here. There's no mention of transportation. The mention of age only says that if they're under 18, you can take out these other things. That means that it does happen over the age of 18. As in my instances, all three times I was trafficked, I was 18 or older. There's uh, a huge confusion between human smuggling and human trafficking, and there's a massive overlap. That's why there's the confusion, but one does not equal the other, and they both need to be managed separately. Mm -hmm. 
There's no mention of money. It does say commercial sex act, but it does not specify prostitution. If somebody is being put on a pornography website and somebody else is making money off of it, that is commercial sex and that is human trafficking. There's no mention of who it is that's perpetrating these, these things. It doesn't say a person who is kidnapped and forced into, for, uh, in, into human trafficking. That's because 98 to 99% of all people trafficked are trafficked by people they already know. It is not the kidnapping scenario. Mm -hmm. We keep seeing on the internet something about somebody followed me through Walmart. It's got to be a trafficker. They're trying to traffic me. Probably not. It might be a serial rapist. It might be some guy who's just trying to get your phone number. The chances of, be of it being a trafficker are incredibly slim. And there's still a very real issue with stranger danger. That does not equal human trafficking. I saw somebody not too long ago talking about they saw a young lady run, run, running down the street barefoot and she looked scared and she must have been trafficked. Who can say this? There is no authority who is asking this person as they're running away from the danger. What is your story? Were you trafficked? Do you know what trafficking is? Because most people that are trafficked have no idea what trafficking actually is, just like me. That's a huge part of why I do what I do is trying to educate people not just so that they know how to go out and stop it, but to understand that this is something that they may have experienced. When mm -hmm. I get up on stages, most of the time when I get down from the stage, I will have somebody approach me and say, I had no idea what I went through was called trafficking. It happens so often. We don't have enough survivors speaking up. All of the survivors I do hear speaking up a lot of them try to turn it into a political issue. This is not a political issue. That's another huge myth. It is not Republicans or Democrats one over the other doing the trafficking. This is not a political problem. This is a humanity problem. It is not more Republicans or Democrats that are being trafficked. It is not a political party that's being targeted or doing the targeting. It's humans. Mm-hmm. Another big myth is that it only happens in third world countries. It's right here in the U.S. The first time I was trafficked was in Arizona. The second time I was in Florida. The third time I was in California and moved to Scotland to be with somebody. None of these are third world countries. This right here in our own backyard. There is not a town, city, state that is impervious to trafficking. It happens everywhere. There was a small town in Idaho recently that was... Um, <laughs> there was 160 something people in their town. Eight of them were being trafficked. Wow. There are literally millions of people being trafficked every single day. Now you mentioned that there was a difference between the smuggling and the trafficking. Can you speak to that? I can. I actually was just working on a slide about that. Huh. <laughs> it's really, really interesting uh, the, so human trafficking involves the exploiting of men, women, or children for the purposes of forced labor, commercial sex, right? But human smuggling involves the provision of a service, typically transportation or fraudulent documents, to an individual who's voluntarily seeking to gain illegal entry into a foreign country or transportation across state lines. One is by choice, one is by force. 
Great. Thank you for that. And I know there's been a lot of awareness coming forward because of the movie Sound of Freedom and that there have been um, a lot of people um, complaining about the media's role in the promotion of the human trafficking issue, period. Could you share your views on the media and their role in human trafficking? I mean, one of the big things there is that we see and hear all the time people talking about sex trafficking, right? Mm -hmm. That's like the big ticket here in the U.S. That's right. what everybody's talking about. That only makes up about 14% of all trafficking here in the U.S. Most trafficking here is labor trafficking. Mm -hmm. So sex sells. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it'll always be. That's what people want to talk about. That's what people want to focus on because they see everything else as not being quite as detrimental. And it absolutely is. Part of what I went through in Scotland was also labor trafficking. I was the in-house maid. When I wasn't performing like a circus monkey uh, for his guests, as we called them, I kept a clean house. If I didn't, I would face trouble. So... We have all of these ideas of, you know, it only happens to all these kids because that's all the news is reporting is, you know, all of these children are being trafficked. And that's something else that we see in almost all of the movies that are made about human trafficking. We'll see also a lot of blurred lines between trafficking and smuggling. We will also see where organizations are taking the stories of the survivors and passing them along through their movies or through their social media posts where they're doing this to garner more sympathy so that they can fill their pockets with more money from more donors. Mm. And they say this is so they can do more missions. But in reality, the CEOs of these organizations are living in $6.5 million mansions down in San Diego. Mm. And you know, they didn't make that money working for the Navy SEALs. So I have issues with all of this, not just with the people that are making movies, not just with the media, but with everything that is involved because they're not getting to the truth of the matter. When you see in the headlines, 162 people arrested in a human trafficking sting, ask yourself for a moment who those people are. They're going to be the purchasers. They're going to be the trafficked persons and they're going to be the traffickers, right? When we're looking at how that breaks down, 55% or so are the people who are purchasing sex. About 45% are the people who are being trafficked. So the traffickers, the really bad guys out there, make up about 10% of the people being arrested. You break that down a little bit more, the purchasers, that first 55%, they get about an 80 to $120 fine and a slap on the wrist and they're released. They get about the exact same as you would get when you cross a limit line at a red light, depending on what state. But the trafficked persons, the prostitutes, the, you know, the, the victims, the real victims, they're getting jail time. They're getting a permanent record and then they're getting bailed out. But who's bailing them out? It's usually the traffickers. And the traffickers, about 2% of the ones that they do arrest, face prosecution. It's because you have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. And if there's no actual visible chains on somebody's wrist, how do you prove these things? 
And when that traffic person is bailed out, it's usually by the person that's trafficked to them who then insists on being paid back that bail money. So now that person is even more indebted to them and has to do more of the same to be able to manage that. You know, with everything that you have going on, um, it seems like it's so emotionally charged. And I'm just wondering, how do you maintain your resilience and, you know, your self-care while dealing with such demanding work? I am very passionate about this stuff. (laughs) But such a huge release for me is being able to write. It has always been this great relief, this great gift. When I sit down and just type out a couple of pages of a book, I get lost in those pages, which is why I love to write fiction. I haven't published a whole lot of fiction yet, but I love to write fiction. I can get lost in these worlds that I've created in my own mind. But what's missing off of this table back here behind me is a versatile record player that plays modern vinyl, 45s, and 78s. And I love getting lost in my old music. Anything from the 1940s, and I'm in love. So my dress here, this dress is from 1947. It's the dress I was wearing on the cover of my autobiography. I love that gown. I get lost in painting, in cooking. We have a very strong trauma reaction, most of us, for needing to have a sense of control. But in life, basically, you're sitting in the backseat of the bus trying to avoid the potholes like that. You can't do that. You can control your reaction to the potholes. You cannot control whether or not you hit them. You're not driving the bus. We have to find outlets that allow us that sense of control. Painting, writing, singing, drawing, listening to music. Anything that's creative gives us a sense of control. We can get all of this stuff that's in us out and let it go. One of the greatest things that I've ever found was writing my autobiography. I didn't know that anybody else in the world would ever read it. Apparently quite a few people have, (laughs) (laughs) but being able to do that, I got to put down all of this garbage and I gave all of this trauma a body separate from me that I could set down on the shelf and walk away from. That's probably the best healing advice that I can ever give to anybody to be able to take care, take care of yourself, to have control over yourself and your emotions, use a creative outlet, get it out of you, allow it freedom. Wow. Now, gosh, you've done so much work, so much self-reflection on your journey, what aspects of your own personal growth have been the most significant for you, both as a survivor and in the various roles that you're now playing? Gosh, I was terrified when I first got started trying to help other people. I felt constantly like I was going to be triggered. And a couple of times I have been. I had this overwhelming fear of if I get into this conversation with this person over here, their story is similar to mine. I'm going to start having these flashbacks and these nightmares again. What if I do? I have to recognize that this is always going to be a possibility, but I also have to recognize that these are trauma reactions and I am in a safe place. I am in a stable, loving home. I have 
lots of resources available to me. I can get through this. But that person on the other line, they might not. And I have to keep it into perspective. There's a reason that I'm still here on this planet. There's a reason I'm still alive. And it's not for selfish reasons. That's beautiful. So for people who may be listening to this and not so much that they're triggered, but they're brought into a state of awareness, do you have any advice to offer them? If you don't know if what you went through is called trafficking, reach out to an anti-trafficking organization in your area. They can definitely help you through it. I had a lady reach out to me just a couple of days ago. She needed counseling and therapy to kind of process what it was that she'd been through. And she did finally recognize that it was called trafficking. Mm. Through a quick internet search, I was able to find an anti-trafficking organization in her state that offers these services for free to survivors. Those resources are out there. They're, these people are there specifically because they know that what you've been through is painful and they want to help. Let them do their jobs. Let them help you in whatever way they're capable of help. And if you don't know what's out there, it's the same as not having those resources available. But we live in the age of the internet. We live in the age where a lot more people are talking about trafficking. They weren't talking about this stuff when I was 18, 19, and 31 years old. Right. I didn't have those resources. If you need help finding those resources, reach out to me. I will help you. 100% of the time, I will absolutely bend over backwards to help you find somebody. You have to take the next steps. I cannot hold your hand through everything. But if you're able to reach out to me to ask for that help, you're strong enough to be able to make those next steps too. Beautiful. And if people want to reach out to you, how can they do so? Um, my website is probably the easiest place. It's growthfromdarkness.com. But I'm also all over Facebook, probably way more than I should be. And I would write more than two books a year if I wasn't on Facebook as much as I am. Um, so Ida Place is probably a great place to hit me up. I'm also on Instagram. You know, send me a message. Beautiful. And I have another question about your uh, podcasting. So you have four different podcasts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So my main podcast is survivors stories of hope live on and i interview other people who have written their own stories of overcoming these deep traumas and i, I help them to kind of get their voices out there one of the things i realized after having written my book was that a lot of people had done the same and they still weren't being heard and they need to be heard that's part of their healing the whole reason they wrote the book is because they need to be heard yeah so every week, sometimes twice a week, depending on the week, sometimes more than that, uh, I will have an episode where I talk to another survivor who has written their story and they're willing to share it with the world. I have a lot of those books available right here in my office because they are so wonderful. My guests love to send me their books and it just makes me feel good and, and all ooey gooey inside. Um, <laughs> my second podcast is called Growth from Darkness. That one I co-host with a lady from Australia. She is amazing and I love her to pieces. We talk about trauma reactions and what the long-term consequences are of not fighting back against them and then how to retrain our brains to have a healthier, happier life and to stop these bad behaviors. 
that one's been really beneficial for both of us. And she's also an author. She's written her story and I had her on my first podcast. The third podcast is called That's a Phobia. And it's <laughs> basically me trying to pronounce a horrendously long word <laughs> and then spell it out and then talk about what the phobia is that the web that the episodes are only one to two minutes each super short and the last one is called Podzeal, where i have podcasters come on and talk for about five to seven minutes about why they got into podcasting what their podcast is about who they are behind the backgrounds that kind of stuff and just kind of give people a behind the scenes shot of whatever podcast they're listening to Beautiful. Now, with all of the people who are sharing their stories, I know you cannot get into individual stories, but I'm wondering, do you see this common theme that's being thread among all of the survivors? Yes, absolutely. These are stories of hope and resilience and the people that refused to give up and the people who saw rock bottom and didn't quit just because they were there. Mm -hmm. But every single one of them found their own rock bottom. They had to climb out of the trenches. They had to dig out of these holes that somebody else dug. Now they all stopped reaching for the band-aids and started reaching for the shovels. Well, your story definitely is um, a testimony to human spirit and how someone can rise above and move forward and make a true impact. You know, I think that with some people, the sharing of their story brings such shame. It brings such self-guilt. Um, and it really triggers every shadow aspect uh, that they have or that other people have projected onto them. And so it's wonderful to know that there are places that people can go um, they have people to talk to so that, that they can begin to understand that that is not true for them. You know, this is not something they chose. It is not something they caused. It is not something that they invoked. It's something that was done to them, no matter how the manipulation of the situation occurred. And the fact that you're able to you know, shed the light and share these different scenarios of manipulation, I think is going to really give a lot of people hope. Um, I'm sure you're out doing tons and tons of public speaking and talking with people. And I just want to commend you on, you know, the bravery that you have of coming forward and, and shedding light on a very sensitive topic that some people may not have realized that they are part of. Absolutely. Probably one of the biggest parts that kind of blew my mind when I learned about my own story was that 85% of all modern pornography is created using survivors or victims of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. It blew my mind. I didn't believe the number when I first saw it until it happened to me. And I wasn't willing to talk about anything because I was so guilty and so ashamed that I was on a pornography website. I lost my job, you know, that nice big job that I had where I was salaried and doing well, they fired me because they found out I was a survivor of human trafficking. And they said they didn't need that kind of trauma. And this happens and we've got to support people, not force them out. Not tell them, oh, you're not good enough to be here anymore because somebody else did something to you. 
it's wrong. But I realized right about that same time that if people were going to be finding me anyway, because he'd included all of my social media and information and personal information, home addresses, anything he could find on me, he included those on those websites. That if he was going to show people who I was, I was going to show people who he was. And that is where my strength began. I was a doormat before that. Terrified, scared. The second I opened my mouth and started telling people what actually happened is when people started to rally around me in support. If you want that support, be open. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today, sharing your story. Could you please repeat the websites uh, that you gave earlier? Uh, And then we also will copy those and put them down in the description. Absolutely. So my website is growthfromdarkness.com. And that is, let's see, right there. (laughs) Okay. Growthfromdarkness.com. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted you to repeat that again, because we also have uh, not just the visual uh, podcast watchers, but we also have the listeners on uh, all the various podcasting, Spotify, Amazon, Google. Um, And so someone contacted me. It's like, you got to give us the websites over again. Spell it out if you have to. So I'm like, oh, (laughs) I didn't think of that. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for being here. So everyone, whether you're watching us um, on YouTube, Amazon, wherever you're watching us, share this video um, with all of your friends, because this is a very, very important message that we want to get out and want to stand behind Amanda's strength and really, you know, really support this effort. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for um, all of the light that you're bringing to this subject, as well as the light that you're shining from within. So are there any final comments that you would like to make? Yes, always. (laughs) All right. We have all grown up hearing the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but it's a lie. That phrase was coined by Frederick Nietzsche. He died in the 1800s in an insane asylum. We can let that one go. The truth is that the strength was always inside of you. It does not belong to the abusers, the abuse, the trauma, the past. It doesn't deserve that kind of credit. You got you through whatever it is that you've got through. You deserve the credit for that. Don't let anybody else take it away from you. Beautiful. Thank you again. You're watching and listening to us on the Conscious Awakening Network. So please check us out on the consciousawakeningnetwork.org. Sign up to be on our mailing list and you will not miss out on any of our programming or wonderful events like what we had today. Our speaker has been Amanda Blackwood, and she is a survivor of human trafficking and a true, true testimony to the light and the resilience of the human spirit. Thank you so much. And until we are back together again, namaste and have a beautiful week, everyone. Thank you so much.